0: Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 4-2, The Seventh Fire. This week, our friend Brad Jerzak is giving us his overview of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. He contends that the Beatitudes are a refining fire that prepares us to represent Jesus to the world.
1: Good evening, everyone. Um, We're delighted to be with you tonight. As part of our series on the Beatitudes, um, tonight we have a special treat for you. Um, Brad Jerzak is going to teach on the Beatitudes, which, by the way, if you want to read some of his teaching um, on the Beatitudes, you can look at A More Christlike Way, which came out in 2019, and it's a terrific book. Brad, thank you for joining us tonight. My pleasure. Um, Happy to help you. That's great. He's, he, he's bailing me out. Um, uh, just a little bit of a health issue. No, it's not COVID-19. And um, uh, But when, when we had the opportunity to have Brad, uh, when I said to our team this morning, you know, maybe I could do it. They said, no, no, no. <laughs> we want Brad. This is good. So uh, <clears throat> let me just say this if uh, some of you don't know much about Brad and, and I, I just want to say that he is a dear, dear friend of mine, um, you know, spiritually, he's probably my closest friend. Uh, we met, we used to live in the same city in Canada. We met about 10 years ago. Um, he, uh, his publishing company uh, kindly published my first book. And in that process, we, uh we just started spending more time together and um, he is a, he's a dear friend. He's a spiritual mentor to me. I have, uh, he's opened up uh, so many worlds to me uh, theologically. And um, so I'm just so much appreciating that, that you guys can hear from Brad tonight and I'm going to get out of the way Brad, so that you can uh, jump in on the Beatitudes. God bless you, my friend. Thank you.
2: Um, so is that what we're focusing on, the Beatitudes specifically, or the Sermon on the Mount in
1: more broadly? What this do you series you know what? is on the Beatitudes. Excellent, excellent. If you want um, to talk about Obadiah, that's okay. No, it's just too
2: much. In fact, the the the, um, the sermon doesn't take that long to preach, but it takes a lifetime and more to study. And the Beatitudes yeah. themselves are. Extremely dear to me. So that that's definitely what we're going to chat about tonight. And that's great And there's no possibility that you and I will both cover it all So I don't even have to worry about overlap if we repeat something that's fine, but um,
1: oh Brad, I'm sorry a practical thing. I forgot to say for those who come on uh, near the end we'll put a zoom link and people can come on and ask you a couple of questions And then we'll move from that into what we call our Global House Church. But that link will come up in the last few minutes of Brad's teaching. Sorry to interrupt you, but I was supposed to say that. There you go.
2: That's great. Well, let's pray. How about that? Uh, So, O Heavenly King, O Comforter, Spirit of Truth, who is in all places and fills all things treasury of good gifts and giver of life. Come dwell with us. Cleanse us from every stain and save our souls, O good one. Holy God, holy mighty, holy immortal, have mercy on us. All holy trinity, have mercy on us. Lord, wash away our sins, pardon our iniquities. Holy God, visit and heal our infirmities. For you are a good and merciful and man-befriendering God. Lord of mercy, Lord of mercy, Lord of mercy. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Mm. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So, that's just a standard daily Orthodox prayer that I like to pray. Um, and often there'll be some sort of thing that jumps out at me when I'm praying. This time it was in the Lord's in the Lord's prayer, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And I think what we want to do is I want to start out by just talking about the importance of the Sermon on the Mount in general. Then we'll get to the Beatitudes. But um, I've encountered actual opposition to taking the Sermon on the Mount seriously. In fact, just this week, someone told me, well, you know, the Sermon on the Mount was given to old covenant believers. And um, the implication is that they, they could dismiss the sermon on the mountain, negate the words of Jesus because really they don't count because they happen before the finished work of Christ as if the finished work of Christ on the cross is the beginning of the work when in fact in Luke 4 Jesus launches his ministry and he announces the new covenant in Nazareth the Spirit of the Lord Lord is upon me he's he's, uh, he's called me to preach good news to the poor. And, and then he goes through a whole list of what the gospel or the good news will sound like, sight to the blind, healing to the, to, to the sick, or, or cleansing of the leper, um, uh, release of captives. And then he declares the acceptable day of the Lord's favor. And what that is, that's the new covenant. Isaiah was prophesying the new covenant. Jesus quotes him directly. And then he finishes that sermon by saying this, today, today, this Word is is fulfilled, so it's not like he's going to kill time for the next three and a half years, die on a cross, and then, and then sort of like, uh, get rolling with the new covenant. The new covenant starts at the latest in Luke four with the announcement of his of his ministry. I would say, in fact, the new covenant begins with his conception in the womb of Mary, but in his own words, he he's certainly saying that the things he is teaching throughout the gospels are not to old covenant believers. They are, they are the marching orders and the uh, how could we put this? They're like the constitution of the kingdom of God. And he is unrolling that now. And so um, what we want to do is we definitely want to take the sermon on the Mount seriously as a Christian teaching. And We know this for a couple more reasons. One is that at the end of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, he finishes with the parable of the men who build their house on the sand or the man who builds his house on the rock. And he says this, the wise man who builds his house on the rock is the one who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. In that sense, he's pushing back at all those theologies that said, well, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, it's just a higher form of righteousness that you can't keep and therefore don't even try. In fact, that was Bonhoeffer's critique of Luther. Bonhoeffer says that critiques that in his critique that that Luther is effectively saying if you you are not welcome. To. um, To obey the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, if you try to obey the Sermon on the Mount, you are renouncing grace. And, and Bonhoeffer's like, oh my goodness, that's not right. Christ himself says that the wise man is the one who puts these words into practice. Well, the worry then becomes like, whoa, this is going to be a new law, a new legalism. It's, uh, not to worry. This is not a new law to try to attain in our flesh. This is about the life of God living in us through Jesus Christ, that It is the Jesus version of the fruit of the spirit. When Christ is in you, he will generate a kind of grace that produces the Jesus way, the Jesus walk, the way of the cross. And so to be a disciple of Christ is to take up the cross. That too is in the Sermon on the Mount. What is the cross way? What is the Jesus way? What does the Jesus walk look like? And we know at the end of Matthew as well, you know, Matthew wasn't written for Old Covenant believers or even for the initial listeners. It's written for a Christian community. And in recording the words, the life, the teachings of Jesus for this Christian community, Matthew says in his Great Commission, uh, you know, go and and make disciples of all nations. uh, Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them everything I've commanded you. What has he commanded them? Well. It begins in the sermon on the mount. It is not a mistake that the New Testament starts with the Gospel of Matthew, even though Mark was almost certainly written earlier and that Matthew even depends on Mark for some of his material, but it begins with Matthew because you have this beautiful genealogy of Jesus, the generation of Jesus, the his um uh, his his birth and then and then he does his his ministry, his very first sermon. He's out in galilee and he's preaching repent turn to god this is good news if you turn to god the kingdom of god is among you and 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 believe this good news and so we get in matthew 5 to 7 what we call the sermon on the mount and it is the foundational teaching of jesus it's the core of his teaching Um, it's a powerful teaching it's in a more Christ-like way, I'll show you the cover. This is what the book looks like. I have it out because I'm going to refer to it a little bit. More Christ-like way. It's the way of Jesus. And it's a way described uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. It is the life of the Spirit. It, as I said, it's the constitution of the kingdom. It's our marching orders. But it, again, it's not it's not a legalistic set of, of rules you can never obey so you have to count on grace rather this is going to be the grace-filled life at the beginning of those three chapters we have what we call the beatitudes there's some debate about how to translate that word blessed um the greek word is makarios and one of the issues is that um you know who knows what he said in in aramaic or hebrew but matthew has chosen to translate it into greek and that word makarios it means more than just happy or blessed Um, the word is used in classical greek to talk about the life of the gods so first of all i want you to imagine like let's say in in homer's writing of the greek pantheon of gods what would makarios look like the life of the gods it would look like you know these powerful deities sitting together and, and, and uh, let's say they're in the heavens and they're, they're drinking it up and they're feasting and then they see people on earth that they're going to go down and, and maybe they'll make love to them and have half human, half gods and um, and maybe they'll manipulate armies into conflict and so on. And, but at the life of the gods is this elevated life. And Jesus comes along and he says, actually, let me tell you about the divine life. And it's, it's radical because it's the upside-down kingdom. The divine life looks like poverty of spirit. The divine life looks like those who can mourn with those who mourn. The divine life looks like meekness. No, no God in the Greek pantheon ever looked meek. In fact, half the time Yahweh doesn't look meek. But Christ is coming. He is, he's giving us a revelation of God in himself that the divine life will be for the meek. It's going to be for those who hunger and thirst for justice. It's going to be for those who value mercy and obtain mercy and give mercy. The divine life is for those who are going to fix their eyes on Jesus, the pure in heart who see God, the one, that God who hangs on a cross. The divine life is for those who are so transfixed by that gaze on the cross that they become peacemakers who are called children of god that's what the divine life looks like and it's going to it's going to cause persecution in the divine life it's a blessing on those who are persecuted they're going to be vindicated theirs is the kingdom of heaven in fact, the prophets always were and they will mark those themselves as those who are in the tradition of the Jewish prophetic uh, people. So so the, the beginning of this sermon, the beginning of this sermon begins with the divine life. And, and that's why I say it's sort of, um, it would be like Jesus' version of the fruit of the Spirit or Jesus' expression of Christ in me. Um, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. What will that look like? That will look like the Beatitudes. And so um, Benedict XVI, for example, he will say that the Beatitudes are a hidden or a it's a subtle autobiography of Jesus himself. Jesus is the perfect expression of poverty of spirit. He is the one who mourns for the sins of the world. He is the one who steps down in meekness and washes his disciples' feet. He is the one who hungered and thirsted to do justice in this world and make things right by mercy. And he's the all merciful one who instead of inflicting wrath on us when we took his life, uh, poured out radical forgiveness. He's the one who's known as the son of God. First of all, by nature, And he's the only one who has beheld God in his naked essence from all eternity. He is the one who is not only persecuted, but crucified. And he is the ultimate expression of the Jewish prophetic tradition. And in fact, all prophetic traditions. Uh, Men like Gandhi saw this. They said, you know, if people would read the Sermon on the Mount every day and put it into practice, It would solve the problems of the whole world. And he was troubled by the fact that Christians weren't doing it. But you know what? He did. So Mahatma Gandhi, who would not even claim to be a Christian, read the Sermon on the Mount every day and tried to live by it. That's pretty radical. It brings to mind the parable of the two sons, where one son says, well, I'll go out into the field tomorrow. And then he doesn't. And the other son says, I'm not going to go out into the field tomorrow. But then he does. And then Jesus asks, which one? Which one obeyed his father? And if I claim to be a Christian, but I'm not following the Jesus way, but Gandhi doesn't claim to be a Christian, but he did follow the Jesus way, who's the Christian? That's a troubling question. Well, I don't know who's the Christian, but I know who the wise one is. It's the one who takes these words and puts them into practice. I want to read to you a translation that um, one of my mentors, Ron Dart, wrote. I'm going, it's a, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful expression. In a sense, then it even gives us commentary. Here's how he puts it. This is on page 150 of my book. The divine life is for those who die to the demands of the ego. Did you catch that? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Is it just, well, I'm poor. I don't feel good. I'm kind of empty inside. It's more than that. Poverty of spirit. When read through the spirit becomes the ability to say no to the to the ego to say no to the craver to say no to that part of me that wants to be god and it's the part of me that needs to be emptied so i can be filled with the life of god and so ron says the divine life is for those who die to the demands of the ego such people will inherit the kingdom of heaven the divine life is for those who've lived through tragedy and suffering Such people will be comforted at a deep level. The divine life is for those who bring their passions under control for goodness. That's his definition of meek, bringing the passions under control for goodness. It is such people who inherit the earth. The divine life is for those who hunger and thirst for justice. Such people will be fed to the full. The divine life is offered to those who are gracious and merciful. Such people will be treated in a merciful and gracious manner. I would add to that, such people will begin to develop the mercy of Christ in their own character. They'll become Christ-like in that sense. The divine life is offered to those whose house is clean on the inside. Such people will know the very presence of God and see his face. Divine life is offered to those who are makers and creators of peace. Such people will be called children of God. The divine life is known by those who are persecuted for seeking justice. Such people will know what it means to live in the kingdom of heaven. The divine life is known by those who are mistreated and misunderstood in their passion for justice. They will inherit the kingdom of heaven. The prophets were treated this way in the past. Now, before I forget, I want to just point out how Ron had translated the uh, a Greek word dikaiosune, as justice. And we often read righteousness there. And that's an interesting decision. Well, here's the fact. In Hebrew and Greek and Chinese and Czech and Thai, and virtually every other language on earth except English, There's one word for justice and righteousness, but we divide them up in English. And there's a downside to that, because when you read um, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, what can you imagine? Well, I want to be personally righteous. I want to be privately righteous. I want to be righteous in my heart. And that's all good. But the word, the word there, uh, it's not just a personal private faith kind of word, that it's a, it's a righteousness in the land. It's, it's doing justice. It is bringing justice wherever we go, being justice to those who are in our neighborhood and to those whom we reach out. And so this hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's, gonna, it's meant to be filled, and it's meant to be filled not just in our private piety, and personal holiness, but it's meant to be extended into the life of this world. And so that's an important point to make there. I also want to say that I love to use the the Beatitudes as as a way of doing discernment. So um, when I go to like really sort of renewal charismatic churches, I used to do that a lot. I used to be in one, and, and they love fire, don't they? Um, And so I would tease them all weekend about install about the, uh, installing the seventh fire. And we're gonna, on Sunday. We're going to talk about the seventh fire. And, and they're like, "Ooh, the fire, right?" And it's, "Ooh, what's the seventh fire?" I'm like, "I'm not telling you." And I would just tease it. Um, <coughs> and as I would tease it, I would begin to say things like, um, "I'm going to teach you about the seventh fire because the psalmist says that the um, the word of the Lord is pure." like silver refined in the fire seven times. Who here loves the word of the Lord? And so, of course, the prophetic people, yeah, we love the word of the Lord. You know, we bring prophets in all the time. We love, we love the prophets. I'm like, wouldn't it be amazing to know the seventh fire that prevents you from ever being deceived again, you would be able to have the highest form of discernment to distinguish God's voice from the competing voices. Who would like that? Oh, I want that. Well, come on Sunday and we'll install the seventh fire right in your own belly. Imagine passing every prophetic word you've ever received or given through, through the seventh fire furnace. And we're, oh man. And so by the time we get to Sunday, they're just. Um, you know, they're on an adrenaline rush probably. And then I preach the Seven's fire and you know what it is? It's the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are the most powerful, um, criteria for prophetic discernment that you can know. And so imagine this, you memorize it and you pray it every day. I've been doing that for many, many years now. And so I, I want to take a moment. I'll depart from Ron's translation and go into my own. And let's let's just take a moment and let's pray together. And I'm going to invite you as we pray the Beatitudes. That I'm going to invite you to to um, allow the Lord to install these Beatitudes as a furnace of discernment in your heart. Um, for it to really stick, you might want to start memorizing and praying the Beatitudes every day. But here's how I do it. And I start actually from the 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 position of humility of the thief on the cross. So I I say it like this, um, Lord Jesus Christ, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then I hear him answer me in my heart, my kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall be, see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who pers- are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of things about you falsely for my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they treated the prophets who came before you. And I usually pray a few more verses into that. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its savor, what good is it except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men? You are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a lamp and hide it under a a bushel or basket. Instead, they put it on a lampstand, and that light gives light to all those who are in the house. So then, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, now I want you to imagine having that furnace in there. And then someone comes along and they have a prophetic message for you. And all you do is you you throw it in the furnace. And if it doesn't make it through the Beatitudes, then it's not a word from the Lord. How about this? Um, someone comes to me and they, they're like, uh, The Lord says to you, uh, I am giving you the nations as your inheritance. And you shall be a prophet to many great nations, and you shall speak to kings and governors. And they're, they're going on. Some of, some of it's even Jesus language, right? And they'll, they'll lay that on me, and I'm like, well, first of all, that's Psalm 2. It's a prophecy about Jesus. It's not a prophecy about me. Now I might serve him in his greatness, but to tell the truth, give me the nations as my inheritance? What is, what's that even mean? It's like, you're going to be a leader of nations. Like, what kind of leader? Will I be president or prime minister or, like, some kind of super apostle? And not just one nation, but many? And, And you just, you start to see, oh, my goodness, I get it. This is grandiosity. Let's see if that fits into blessed are the poor in spirit. Nope, sizzle. It's already gone. If it makes it past that somehow, then, like, you can deceive yourself in mourning somehow. But by the time you get to meekness. You just have to let it go and and say, the spirit of of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. It's not the testimony of my grandiose ministry and, you know, outer galactic ministries international and so on. And it's in the meekness that you end up having a group like, let's say, Impact Nations that actually impacts nations. How was that done? Was that done through grandiose prophetic words? No, it was done by Beatitudes kind of living. I'm going to come back to Benedict then now and say this. In addition to saying that the Beatitudes are a hidden biography of the life of Jesus, his, his own journey, and especially uh, to think about the Beatitudes around his passion, around, around the passion week, his suffering, his uh, death and resurrection. Um, he also says, think about the Beatitudes this way. They are the death and resurrection of Christ transposed that's a musical term right we're going to transpose it from the life death and resurrection of Christ we're going to transpose it into the life of daily discipleship and this is what take up your cross and follow me looks like so what here's what he's getting at the first half of each beatitude is what daily crucifixion looks like the crucifixion of the ego the, the, the mourning The meekness, the hunger, the mercy, the purity of heart. It's a a cleansing of the things, my attachments to the world system, to my own ego needs. It's a cleansing of that. And and, and this is a kind of crucifixion all the way through the first half, culminating in persecution. The second half of each beatitude describes the resurrection life as we live it each day. If you live the crucifixion life today, you will live the resurrection life today. And so what are the second half? Well, it's like yours is the kingdom of heaven. What's the kingdom of heaven? Well, Paul tells us it's righteousness, just it's righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. It's not heaven someday when you die, although that's probably included, but in the immediate let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And that looks like righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. That's the resurrection life. That's fullness of life. It's what Jesus means by eternal life. It's knowing me, knowing my indwelling presence, knowing the grace that emanates from the inside of you by the spirit of God. That's the resurrection. It's entering the kingdom of heaven, inheriting the earth. It's not inheriting heaven when you die. It's inheriting the earth. That is that that we will advance in the world with the glory of God, not to dominate, not to rule it, but to bring good news that transforms people at a deep level. Um, my favorite is that you'd see God. Oh, that's the resurrection life. We call that in, in the Orthodox world, the, the early church fathers called it the beatific vision. Ah, beatitudes, beatific. And it means that the, the divine life comes to its climax as we behold the glorified one, the one who died for us, the one who hangs on that cross and simultaneously sits on his throne and so it's the one who emptied himself completely ah poverty of spirit then ascends and is glorified on a throne that looks like a cross with a crown that's made of thorns and from there he rules the nations what a what a dramatic picture that is but it is it is that picture then it becomes our life and death our death and life our death to rebirth every day and so and and not not in in all the glamorous ways that maybe we uh, romanticize martyrdom with, but how about the martyrdom of patience when your friends or spouse or children or whatever you know, when they're not serving my ego needs, and there's a little death that happens when I have to go apologize, and uh, and so this is this is what how the Beatitudes become the way of the cross in us. So you can see how they multi-purpose, right? They point us to the nature and the character of Jesus. They point us to a deeper level of discernment than we've ever known in our lives. They point us to uh, the biography of Jesus, but also how that's transposed into our own uh, daily life of death and resurrection.
0: Hey, can I let you in on a little secret? I'm actually on vacation right now. I recorded this ad a few days before I left. But on the day that I recorded this, we launched our new Impact Nations online store. This morning, our t-shirt inventory arrived at our offices and I couldn't be more excited. Our merchandise features various catchphrases that you've likely heard right here on the Impact Nations podcast. How about, belonging comes before believing, or gospel is always inclusive. Now you can get that on a shirt, a hoodie, a mug, a water bottle, laptop case, and soon a face mask. The coolest thing is that these things were designed by the young men and women from our Elevate program in Uganda. One of my favorites is the Embrace the Paradox collection, a phrase that you will hear regularly throughout this series on the Beatitudes. So go check out the store. Visit impactnations.com slash merchandise to see all of the collections. 100% of the profits from the store will be poured right back into our skills and business programs, where we will help people in the developing world escape generational poverty. So you get to rescue lives and look good while doing it. Again, that's impactnations.com slash merchandise. We've also created a nice big shop button in the top right corner of the website for you so you can't miss it. And now... Back to the podcast.
2: What else might we say about the Beatitudes? Well, here's an interesting thing. I have a friend who is in 12-step recovery. He would not identify as a Christian um, because he's very annoyed by what he's seen in the church. At the same time, he absolutely believes in the necessity of surrendering his life every day to the care of a loving God, to reading the Sermon on the Mount every day and obeying Jesus. Again, it's like, well, if that's not a Christian, what is? And he just simply can't identify as that. And I'm wondering, maybe we shouldn't. Instead of saying, I'm a Christian, maybe we should ask ourselves, am I Christian? In other words, does Christian describe who I am? And in fact, that's not for you to judge. Maybe you should ask your family or your neighbor. Maybe it's for your neighbor to decide if you're a Christian or not, right? And so I look at I look at this friend of mine, and um, and I I think, man, that guy is. That guy is Christian deeply in a daily obedience to the Sermon on the Mount and daily surrender to the life of Christ. Now, here's what he said to me about that. The reason why I read the words of Jesus and obey them every day is because it is the original program of recovery. Now, he's been in 12-step recovery for probably almost 30 years now. 12-step recovery begins with this. Step one, it says... And so this is for alcoholics, uh, drug addicts, sex addicts, you name it. Uh, step one says, uh, we admitted that we were powerless over our addiction and that our lives had become unmanageable. And so this addict says to me, so so do you see how that's that's poverty of spirit? It is admitting that you're powerless over sin. It's admitting that your life is unmanageable apart from the help of God. That's step one. So already you're practicing the Sermon on the Mount there. And then you get to Matthew chapter six, and it's about trusting your life completely to the care of this loving God. That's step three. That's step three. And so what he's doing is he's saying, look at um, long before Alcoholics Anonymous ever started, we had a program for recovery that was rooted in surrender to the care of a loving God, to belief in someone, Jesus called Abba, and that was a new thing on the scene. You know, like. The analogy of God as Father is almost never used in the Old Testament, and only really as an analogy. It's Jesus who introduces us in the Sermon on the Mount to the idea that God could be your indwelling, caregiving Abba, and that's the one we surrender to. The prophets knew a lot about God. They had experienced God in many ways. They spoke of God a lot. They give a revelation of God through their own worldview and their own understanding, but it's... A limited understanding. The one, the one who had been in the bosom of the Father from all eternity, when he comes to make him known in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, this God is Abba. Abba. And to know to know this God is Abba and to trust him and, as Abba is to know that he loves you, that he loves your neighbor, but he also loves your enemies, and he is making the world right. So take up your cross and follow him. In other words, begin the Jesus way. Begin this program of recovery over our addiction to ego, our addiction to the world system, and transcend all of that uh, left-right political garbage and begin to follow the Jesus way of radical surrender, radical forgiveness, radical generosity. In, In fact, this is the righteousness that exceeds the the righteousness of the Pharisees—they were just doing outward deeds. He says, "I want to come inside, and is going to transform your heart. You're going to be—you're going to be a new creation by grace." Well, let me just pop into my book again and see if there's any other highlights. And in, in a few minutes, we're, we're going to—we're um, uh, going to be doing a little Q and A. So maybe have have some thoughts going on that right away. All right, where's my chapter? Radical recovery. I want to connect this idea of poverty of spirit to Philippians chapter 2 briefly. In Philippians chapter 2, we read that, all the, that um, first of all, Paul starts the chapter, Philippians 2, he says, have this mind in you that was in Christ. And so he he's actually calling them to live a certain way. It's not just about believing a certain thing. I want, to, I want to you to live a certain way. What way does Paul want us to live? With the attitude of Christ, who, though he was equal, equal with God, did not regard his equality with God as something to cling to. But he sets aside privilege. He empties himself. He doesn't become less God. In fact, what he does is he shows us God. God this the one who empties himself into the world as servant love. And so I notice uh, in French, for example, Simone Vey, she uses the word voided. Um, in, in the sense of, of when we void ourselves, that would be like... Um, you know, urinating or something, but it, it's it's an absolute voiding of self. So what she does is she uses that very same French word in the first beatitude, and when she translates, uh, kenosis, the self-emptying of Christ, he voids himself, and blessed are those who voided themselves. theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so when Christ voids himself, what is he filled with? He's filled with the supernatural love of his Abba, and that, not magic, not power. That supernatural love that fills the the voided self, the voided heart, fills it with divine love. That's the active ingredient in the healings. And so when when Impact Nations goes to these places and they take the place of humility, for example, and they co-suffer with the people they're serving and they bring the good news of the kingdom of God, it's remarkable that those who are avoided get filled, and we see we see testimony after testimony comes in when I when I watch the website, I'm like, how is this possible? Well, it's possible because the it's divine love that it with the power to heal that fills those who've emptied themselves, and Christ is the first fruits of that. And what the early fathers would say it like this way What Christ is by nature, you become by grace. In other words, Christ is the eternal son of God by nature. You become sons and daughters of God as you live the Jesus way, as as you surrender to grace's work in you. And so, again, I, I want to say that that um, the Sermon on the Mount comes across as very demanding, and it actually doesn't work unless you receive the grace of God in you. But when when you receive the grace of God, which, by the way, is the Holy Spirit, Grace is not unmerited favor or anything like that. Grace is the person of the Holy Spirit living inside you, transforming you from glory to glory into the image of Christ. So the more surrendered, the more emptied we are of ego, the more bankrupted we are of self, the more we are filled with the life and grace of the Holy Spirit and the character and the meekness and the mercy of Jesus and especially the divine, the divine love of Abba, who reaches out through us and mediates his care of the world through us. And so who we are becoming is not for ourselves. It's for the life
0: of the world. All right. We've had two excellent introductory episodes for this series on the Beatitudes. Next week, we'll get started on Blessed are the Poor in Spirit. Imagine how much more fun it would be to listen to that episode while wearing your brand new hoodie that says, How Beautiful is Your Gospel? Go to impactnations.com merchandise and check out all of our collections and make your selection today. Your purchase will help us train even more people in skills and business. Thanks and have a great week.